This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have a phenomenal guest with us. He's a legend in the world of finance, the founder and chairman of Signature Bank, as well as a voraciously curious thinker about religion and its public role and culture. We've got Scott Shea with us today, and we're going to talk about the world of education. We've been talking recently about the book of Exodus, and this week I actually want to talk about the actual Exodus itself, the moment when biblical history really begins. In fact, if you'll recall what the New York Times' David Brooks said on this very podcast, uh, that America is an Exodus nation, then this is really the moment when American history begins as well. But this isn't just the beginning of a people's story or a nation's story. It's also the beginning of a story for one of the greatest leaders in the history of civilization, Moses. I mean, when the Israelites finally escape Egypt, Moses has the opportunity to address his people in public for the first time as the actual leader of a people rather than just a dissident agitator within Egyptian society. So what do you say in a moment like this? What's the message that you deliver to your people? I mean, that you deliver to listening ears across the generations. I mean, you could talk about anything, the importance of perseverance, the importance of liberty. Heck, you can even dump on the defeated Egyptians a bit. Uh, But Moses actually doesn't do any of this. Instead, what he mentions over and over again is education. The very first words out of Moses' mouth right after the Exodus are, remember this day. And then he emphasizes that this isn't just an obligation for the people who experienced it, but he continues, and you should tell your child about the things that happened here over and over again. In his opening address to the Israelites, Moses talks about teaching. Why? Well, I think the answer is because freedom without knowledge isn't real freedom at all. It's just being unfettered. It's just nature. There's nothing noble about just doing as you please for any reason at all. Animals are unfettered. No, real freedom is not only being physically free, an important precondition to be sure, but spiritually free. Free to do the thing that we humans, alone in creation, can do, and that is to make meaning out of the world. We are literally the only creatures that do this. Real freedom is founded in our capacity to make meaning out of the world around us. And the way we ensure that the next generation can do that, in fact, do it even better than we could, is through education. So how do we ensure that our society is educating well? What are we doing well? What's going wrong? And what could we be doing better? And to unpack all of this, I invited on a remarkable person who's both a thinker and a doer who's thought deeply about this. He's written a number of best-selling books on education, religion, culture. And as a builder, as I said, he's the founder and CEO of Signature Bank. He's the amazing Scott Shea. Scott, thanks so much for being here. It's good to be in the room with you. Let's do it. A virtual room, but a room nevertheless. I love it. So... My first question for you before we, you know, dive right into the ideas that I know are very meaningful to to both you and to me, I want to understand a bit more about your background because we've had one of the types of people, I suppose, that we have often on the podcast are people that I find myself fascinated by, people who are doers, who are builders, who've actually built companies and, and build in the world of things, as it were, but who also are, or maybe even as a consequence, are deeply concerned with and interested in and curious about the world of ideas. And you strike me as the sort of instance par excellence of that. You're a builder of financial institutions and you're someone who who cares deeply about the world of ideas. So what's your journey towards that combination? I suppose the first thing someone would want to know about me in that journey is that I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. 
So my father made it to the United States after being liberated from Dachau, where he was less than 70 pounds, after his father was murdered practically in front of him, his brothers, his aunts, his uncles, cousins. I mean, my closest relative is a second cousin once removed on his side. And he really, in a certain way, was unlike people who have faith in God, he was certain there was a God because he knew there were so, so many hidden miracles and outright miracles that got him from Schwechner, Lithuania to Chicago, Illinois, where he remarried and had a son, that he knew it was no coincidence. I mean, if your microphone were pointing the other direction or this microphone were turned around in the other way, or he was one step back, one step forward, one step to either side, he would have been dead. And sadly, that's no exaggeration. So he always struggled as to how evil can exist in the world, as to what meaning was. And there are certain things that are not taught, but they're caught in education and in life. And I caught that questioning. I was the first person on either side of my family ever to attend college. And probably, and maybe only the second generation of attending even what would be high school. So that questioning, that search for meaning. I mean, I think my father felt that, and this is something I've in, inculcated in myself, is that there's really two, imp there may be more, but there are at least two important dates in someone's life when they're born and they have potential. And then when they figure out why are they here? You know, why did God put them here? What is their role in the world? And many people just go through their entire life without thinking about that. But that search for meaning, I think I really caught from my father. So one of the fascinating things about a story like that is that it's not just an immigrant story, but it's a story of having to almost experience that kind of immigrant impulse in multiple generations. So in other words, you you know, we live in a world of credentialism and meritocracy, and oftentimes we sort of confuse those things, like we confuse credentials for merit. Mm -hmm. And so we think of non-credential generations as somehow less accomplished or less able than generations with lots of credentials. And I think the certainly the Jewish experience, I think increasingly the Latino experience in, in America belies that. And it makes me think of one of the great paradoxes that biblical literature all the way down to Alexis de Tocqueville foresaw with a society that strives not to sort of like uh, escape this world, but to better this world. And that is in the Bible, on the one hand, you have the idea that it's always kind of good to be at the beginning of something the early generations try much harder, the more success you experience, uh, you know, the more lazy you get and the more you tend to think that the success is all due to your own efforts. At the same time, the reward for good behavior in biblical literature is plenty. So on the one hand, we want society to grow and we want the next generation to be better off. But we also know that being better off comes with dangers. It comes with laziness. It comes with complacency. And de Tocqueville saw this really complacency as the, the threat that American prosperity and industrial posed to itself. And the question is how to resolve that tension. And as someone uh, like yourself, who's both had to be a builder out of necessity, in other words, coming from a, a background that had nothing, and then achieving extraordinary success, how do you think about resolving that tension? Well, I think it's interesting, and I was connecting with how you began the podcast, which is the notion of the Exodus story. When Abraham, when he first has the Brit Patarim, the first covenant, real covenant, 
he is told to take four sets of animals. And the first three sets, he slices in two. But the last are the birds, the fourth. And the birds are whole. And Abraham is also told three generations are going to suffer greatly in Egypt or in a foreign land. And the fourth will come out. And we see that again and again. And I, I always was struck by my father when he led the Seder the Passover Seder, he understood what it meant to be a slave. I mean, he was slave labor in, in the Svetland Heidekrug work camp. He was then sent to Auschwitz and then was only there for three months because he was sent to clean up after the Warsaw Ghetto. He was a slave and he knew what that meant. And I feel, look, I started with two suits and student debt, and I'm so blessed. It's indescribable. I mean, I'm grateful for, for so much. But I think the fourth generation has a responsibility because what Moses is saying in those speeches is he's really not talking to the generation that left. Egypt. He's talking to the next generation. If you aren't careful, it can all be lost. And that's why I think when you read the book of Joshua, it's a strange book in that everything has to be perfect. You know, just one person stealing or taking booty, it causes a, a disaster and everything has to be perfect. And that's also problematic because we can't be perfect, but we have to be directionally correct because none of us are perfect. That's the one thing for sure. I've already probably got a long, I've already not probably, I've got a long list of al a long list of things to, to ask for atonement for this coming Yom Kippur. <laughs> but we have to be going in the right direction and not lose sight that we got here because of the previous generations. We got here and we have a responsibility. So you've written a great book recently, Conspiracy You, about some of the things that are going wrong in our American systems of education. And first of all, what led you to being interested in this and how do you diagnose the problem? So I'm a graduate of Northwestern University. And while I was at Northwestern University, a tenured professor of uh, electrical engineering came out as a Holocaust denier. And he's still there today, actually, teaching a required course in electrical engineering. And the university never did anything about it, or they didn't do enough about it. Let me certainly say that. So fast forward, and it ties into my father, I started writing an article. It was going to be a 2,500-word article that I was going to submit to a Jewish magazine on lessons I learned from my father. And I tuned back in because we had a number of conversations about understanding truth. And I was going to sort of fold those in. And then I made, I don't think a mistake, but I made a fateful turn, which is I dived into the rabbit hole and read Arthur Butts' The Hoax of the 20th Century, which I had not done before. And and I realized how brilliant people, Arthur Butts is a brilliant person. He came up with something called the Butts algorithm, which probably is one of the reasons you and I are able to have this podcast and be looking at each other because computing power would have been greatly constrained and we would have been a lot less far along on the path to where we've arrived at. So brilliant guy. Yet he's convinced that Jews hid Zionists. Actually, he doesn't mind Jews. We really hate Zionists because Zionists planted thousands of documents to be discovered by investigators so seemingly inadvertently that would talk about this made up hoax of a Holocaust, that the Nuremberg trial was polluted by a few Jews who were on the periphery, that Zionists convinced 
innocent Germans, innocent Nazis to confess to crimes against humanity, to confess to being witnesses, confess to being guards, confessing to all these terrible things. And it was because the, the Zionist using Israel words bamboozled them. So I realized I was entering into a conspiracy theory. And then at the same time, another professor of Northwestern made the front pages here in New York. Well, at the time he wasn't a professor, he gave the convocation speech at NYU. You may have seen this because it made quite a stir at the time, where now Professor Stephen Thrasher, Daniel H. Renberg Chair of Social Justice Reporting at Northwestern University, said how proud he was of BDS and how proud he was of people for boycotting Israel because that's what we're called upon to do, called upon to do I don't know by who. I read his tweets, I read some of what he wrote, and I realized that he he was constructing or victim of conspiracy theories that rhymed with those of Arthur Butts, which blew me away because I was the standard sort of New York liberal who thought far left conspiracy theories about Jews and far left criticism of Israel was less damaging than far right. And then when I dived deep, I realized and I what I cover in the book is how sometimes the far right using descendants of Nazi conspiracy theories and the far left using conspiracy theories with the antecedents from the Soviets, Marxists, and communists are saying exactly the same thing. The words are only a little changed. And so we have something that there's a fundamental link. And that's what this book did. And I, and, and I examined it using as my case study, Northwestern and professors who wrote publicly about serious conspiracy theories that all seem to converge on the Jews. One of the things I think about frequently is the kind of problem you're describing, namely horseshoe theory, right? The idea that the kind of the far left and the far right end up converging in strange and toxic ways. It appears, you know, obviously it proliferates outside of the academy and on QAnon and Reddit and social media is particularly conducive to all sorts of fringe theories and these are no exception. But it does seem to me that for whatever reason, a disproportionate number of highly otherwise like highly educated and very intelligent people who believe stupid things or just manifestly incorrect and certainly conspiratorial things about Israel cluster in the academy. I don't know why it is. I don't know what it is. But one potential response to this would be to say, you know what? Just give up on the whole thing. Higher education in America had a great run, but, you know, we're a very inventive and, and industrious people and let's find other ways to deliver education. But, you know, as we record this podcast where you know, just the bit removed from the announcement by a collective of pretty well-known academic and, and public intellectual personalities like Neil Ferguson and Barry Weiss and so forth, establishing the University of Austin, which is an experiment in trying to create a new American university that will be dedicated to the pursuit of free expression and free inquiry and the pursuit of truth. And this reflects, I think, a view that, in fact, higher education is not dead and we should double down on it and just do it right. So in your view, is higher education something that's worth saving and can be saved? And if not, what should we replace it with? And if it is, why is it worth investing in and how should we save it? Well, those are all questions. Each one of them could take a whole podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to give you some thoughts. Buckle up, folks, for another hour or two. Ready? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, get out the popcorn. So I thought about that issue a lot. In the end of my book, I come up with some recommendations. I honestly thought about, you know, have we, we exceeded the time of peak academia in the U.S.? 
One study, I have to take you on a little segue here, which I found it remarkable. Three academics tried to determine if, let me put it this way, the assumption that most folks had for decades is that if people were educated, they would become less anti-Semitic, that education would be the great equalizer. Three academics did a study, and it was a relatively large one of 1,800 people, well-constructed study, in which different tropes were given about Jews and about some other ethnic group. So example, should the U.S. military prohibit Jews from wearing kippot, skull caps, or Sikhs from wearing turbans? Do Mexicans who move to America have a dual loyalty toward Mexico and Jews, Israel? Seventh-day Adventists about Saturday and Shabbat. And interestingly, those who were college-educated, had a bachelor's degree, were five percentage points, a statistically significant amount, more apt to pick the anti-Jewish tropes and say that and agree with them or agree that those folks shouldn't be helped in the case the Jews should be prohibited from wearing a kippah, but the Sikh should be permitted to wear a turban or the Jews should not be permitted to have full Shabbat observance versus the Seventh-day Adventist. And if you added advanced education, so people who got master's degree or more, it went to 15%. So in other words, sadly, we have to confront that the more education one receives now, the more likely one is to be anti-Semitic. So there's a deep problem there. And I think, sadly, part of that deep problem is that students are being inculcated with distinctly anti-Jewish slash anti-Zionist falsehoods, where they're being taught what to think. And I I think these come down again and again to conspiracy theories. 11% of millennials think that the Jews caused the Holocaust. They agree with Arthur Butts. So we have a deep problem that I think we have to address head on through education. And I think if we don't do it, it's the end of uh, civil society. Since you focus on the Bible, I really want to throw in one example here because I think it's important. This is absolutely the podcast for that. So let's do it. <laughs> so Famously, the Haftarah for um, Tazria Mitzorah. All right, so the portion that we that Jews typically read in the synagogue from the prophets for uh, some of the chapters 11 and 12 in the book of Leviticus. Yes, and, and I believe what I'm referring to is chapters 6, 7, and 8 or so of what's referred to as the Second Kings. And there, the Arameans, the Jews really have problems. They're starving. There's a famine for six, seven years. The city is surrounded in, in North Northern Israel, the king is in deep trouble. One woman is complaining to the king about having eaten her baby. Her, this is sort of a flashback to King Solomon, so it's all sorts of things. And you have the Aramean army. It's about to destroy Israel. And the only people in sight are four lepers. So you know things are tough. That's the only people they can see. But they hear a sound, they hear noises, and they're convinced that the Israelites have hired kings from Egypt and from other parts to destroy them. And so they flee on their feet and they leave everything behind. It's crazy, but they bought into a conspiracy theory. This was a trained army. This was an army that's used to having scouts, used to seeing false flags. Armies are in the business of recognizing things that aren't quite right and decoys. And yet they totally abandoned that and ran on foot and left behind all their animals, all their food. And the first time that this was characterized as a conspiracy theory is by my teacher, Rabbi David Silber. And since then, if you read this story closely, you see that there are certainly rhymes to current 
problems in academia because, you know, the scouts themselves must have said, we don't see anybody but lepers. The intelligence officers, this was a huge army, said, well, wait a second, there's a famine going on. The king of Israel has no money. Second of all, they'd rather we destroy them so they can march in too. Nothing made any sense. But yet the conspiracy theory became so compelling that that's all they could believe. They didn't check the facts. They didn't say, let's send out some more scouts and see if we can find any arm. And unfortunately, that's what's happening in universities today. Theories are negating facts. And that is disastrous. It's always been disastrous. So here's one of the things that this prompts in my thinking. And and I've given this some consideration, particularly in the last couple of months. One of the things that we typically point out when we discuss the unfair and prejudicial ways in which Jews or let's say Israel are treated, whether in the media and academia and other places, is that we point to the disproportionate attention that Jews in Israel get. And I think you highlighted some particularly insidious examples of this earlier, where people are much more likely to care about Jewish difference or object to Jewish difference than they are to other instances of difference. And I think we typically assume that this is a bad thing. And it is. I think it's a little bit under theorized. Like, why do people do this? And that's where you start to get some magical thinking or folk theories. And the most popular one is that, well, this is just the destiny of the Jewish people to always be uh, feared and always be a subject of suspicion and so forth. And while I, I suppose it's it's hard to dismiss those theories, I don't think they're very robust and they certainly don't have a lot of historical and theoretical explanatory power. So I want to offer a second one and see what you think about it and see if we could figure out what to do about it. You can just contrast the two great pillars of our civilization and see the problem. Jerusalem and Athens or Jerusalem and Rome. Nobody's concerned about the latter-day descendants of Rome. Nobody's concerned, unless we were talking about Grexit, about the latter-day descendants of Greece. And it's not like anyone's giving disproportionate attention to the heirs of Cicero or the, the descendants of Demosthenes. The problem, I think, for Greece and Rome is that they just weren't very good storytellers at the end of the day. I mean, you have Homer at a pretty early period, but eventually the great legacy of Rome and Greece, as I've talked about on this podcast a couple of times, is systematic thinking, is mathematics, calculus, physics, natural law, and so forth. What you find in the biblical tradition, by contrast, are great stories. And stories, I think, are are deeply human in a way that system is not. Because as I said earlier, any animal, even plant life, can take advantage or, or leverage the universe's systems in a certain way, whether it's photosynthesis and osmosis taking advantage of the way the you know the way the physical world works or whether it's just any being can figure out one plus one equals two maybe not in an abstract sense but even animals can figure out how to mate what human beings do uniquely is we make meaning out of things and that's what story is story is a way to make meaning now what conspiracies are uh, and here's where i found your book so illuminating conspiracies i think are particularly attractive because they're stories and in fact they're quite intricate stories and they play to our sense of drama right and wrong of transgression and comeuppance And the problem, I think, therefore, with conspiracies is not that they're stories. It's not that it's bad for human beings to tell stories. It's that they're bad stories and they're wrong stories. And in many cases, they're either completely bananas or they're, in the worst cases, they're evil stories. So what we have when it comes to to Jews is a peculiar thing, which is in the history of human civilization, the greatest storytellers in human history were and are the Jews. It's the reason the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It's a great book that makes meaning out of the stuff of natural existence. And so my question is, 
I think you sometimes hear a longing amongst people who are fighting against anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, the two of which are obviously inextricably linked, to sort of say, we wish people would ignore us or would treat us like every other nation or would not focus on us as much. And as much as I kind of do share that feeling, there's a part of me that thinks, well, there's a reason why the world is obsessed with the Jews. I mean, obsession is a bad thing, but there's a reason why the Jews and the stories of the Jewish people in ancient Israel captivate the imagination. It's because they're really good stories. And so the question I have is when we're pushing back against conspiracies and conspiratorial thinking about the Jewish people, should we or is it even realistic to try and get people to stop focusing on us or should we want to actually just tell better stories? Like, is, isn't there something about the human condition that makes it so that they're, they're always going to focus on the best stories? So we should just want those stories to be good ones rather than bad ones. Do you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. So I'm going to raise a few objections. I'm going to join you in a part, but I'm and offer an alternative theory. Concurrence on the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, first of all, I will say this. I encourage you at some point to read some of the ancient Greek literature because it actually is pretty good. It's not moral. Don't get me wrong. There's no morality to be learned from it. No, Herodotus, Thucydides, there are tons of good stories in Herodotus, for sure. They're great stories, and they're good storytellers, and sometimes they're really funny. I mean, with a modern biting sense of humor, and in a certain kind of way, they did give us part of modernity when it came, comes to the way that we think about love in some ways, and it comes to the way we think about um, society in some ways. So there are antecedents that are important because we did get some of what we got today from Athens and Rome. But I'd like to go to the Bible, which is where you were going, in terms of what I think it was doing, which was in reaction to Rome and Athens and prior to that, uh, Babel and Babylonia, and which is this. I talk about this in the book. Um, I try to, by the way, one other thing I just want to say, which I'm not going to do, because I, when you describe conspiracy theories, I actually do in the beginning of the book, because it's a book on conspiracy theories. I really try to unpack what makes a conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory. We might have time for that, but I want to stay with your central point. And that is, I think there is a reason why Jews are so focused on. And that is because the Bible came to upend the way the rest of the world looked at life. The Bible is essentially a screed against idolatry. And sometimes we just take the simple story and say, well, idolatry is just about bowing down to these statues, the old Abraham Medrash story, the legend of Abraham and his father, or other sorts of quaint modern days, Wiccan chants or astrology of some sort. Basically, we think it's harmless. It's harmless. It doesn't really matter. But in reality, I think what the Bible was saying and came to say, and it's a striking statement, is that idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings like the God King Pharaoh or ideologies. So we may have thought we licked the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago, but in reality, the 20th century was a catalog of God King Pharaoh, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler, and I could go on and on, who were using the same methods. So they're using the same tropes that Pharaoh did, power, pageantry, theater, all, of course, backed up with secret informers and police and powerful armies. And how did Stalin get to 
kill 4 million kulaks, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, send tens of millions of people to the gulag. And nobody said anything because he was the God King Pharaoh. And the ideology was was the godliness, was the idolatry. And Mao caused the death of 75 million of his comrades. So it goes on and on. Pol Pot killed 2 million Cambodians because they, he thought they were intellectuals uh, undermining communism. I could go on and on. They did it because they were God kings and because they were idolaters. And you know what I think is lost in terms of the thread is that it's not only the macro basis, it's the micro basis. It's our intimate encounters. How did Charlie Rose and Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer, and unfortunately this, Eric Schneiderman, unfortunately this list goes on and on too. How did they get away with what they got away with? Because they successfully turned themselves into idols. Charlie Rose couldn't be questioned. Eric Schneiderman couldn't be questioned. Harvey Weinstein, he had super authority. They didn't claim superpowers, but if Harvey Weinstein wanted to help someone's career, they got parts. If he didn't, they may as well give up. Nobody's going to have lunch with them in Hollywood, as it were. They were gone. And it was only once those idols were toppled by enough people, it wasn't easy, that the idolatry became exposed. They There shouldn't be super authority. People should get roles in movies because they're good or they're the best for that part, et cetera, et cetera. People should get promoted because they're capable. They shouldn't get promoted because uh, they're uh, involved with Eric Schneiderman. And so what every idolater knows for sure and what gives them fear is that there's a bigger God around. And the Bible represents a fundamental, we obviously think one God and monotheists think one God, but they're worried it's a bigger God. And so if you can topple the big God by toppling his people, you've won. And this is the story from the very, very beginning. And I also learned this from Rabbi Silber, which is the snake character in the, in the third chapter of the Bible. The enemy isn't the two humans. The enemy is God. But the only way he can get at God is to topple the two humans. And so people again and again, and if you're a Stalin, why did he speak? such excess effort trying to get rid of the Jews in many ways or get rid of Judaism because at a fundamental level, he was afraid. And strangely enough, in the 70s, there was something to it. Well, this actually is, is a great transition into the last question I wanted to ask you. So I'm really glad we got here, which is someone like yourself is both a successful builder, successful businessman, and someone who's just deeply, hungrily curious about the world, about history, theology, literature, and so on and so forth. I think there's this kind of like stereotype nowadays that if you want to get an education, whether in a university or, or outside, there are basically two paths you can choose. There's kind of like the technical, practical path of business, of technology, or what ha of the sciences, what have you. Or there's the humanities, which are fluffy are less practical and so on and so forth. And it's a strange thing, historically speaking, because great humanistic learning sort of originated with merchants and people in finance. So you think about like the Quattrocento, sort of the sum total of cultural and artistic achievement, particularly in Italy during the early Renaissance, say, you know, the 15th century. Uh, the people who are reading Cicero and are investigating Demosthenes and are enamored with the tools and texts of Greco-Roman rhetoric are particularly businessmen people who are out there building and doing and achieving practical things. Now, sort of one simple or maybe I'd say even simplistic way to read this is to say, even though there's an element of truth to it, is to say, well, it was an easy way for people who were entering into a world of finance and credit that was suddenly much larger than it had been once upon a time. So, you know, if, if all you have to do is deal with people in your own little village, so you know everybody and you trust everybody, so you can kind of extend favors or, or lend without interest. But once you're in a global credit economy, 
economy, all of a sudden you need to find ways to trust people. And one easy way to do that is to have read the same texts and shared the same experiences and have the same values. That's one way to read it. And there is probably some truth to that. But at the same time, you know, we had Michael Eisenberg on the podcast recently, and he talks very compellingly about the importance of combining value and values, sort of an understanding of the world of things and an understanding of the world of ideas and how those two things actually are inextricable. So I see you as somebody who exemplifies that really at the highest level. So when you think about the intersection, maybe lack thereof, of your interest in finance and business and your interest in the world of ideas, how do those things come together for you in your own in your own thinking? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. I, I think we have to be whole people. And I, I'll give you a practical example, actually, where I didn't expect values and Jewish values to have any impact. And then it had huge impact. And I, I, you may have heard of the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, PPP, uh, at the beginning of COVID where there was a uh, ability where the government offered to, through the banks, have businesses take out loans that were forgivable. So Signature Bank is a middle market bank. So virtually all our clients, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, the majority of them qualified under this program. Our average loan size at the time was $5 million. Almost everybody qualified. And really early on, we didn't know what we were we, we knew. We had to get organized, but we saw some of the banks, and this is no secret that was in the papers. They were either saying only people on the private bank could get these loans, only borrowers could get the loans because we want to protect our loans. So, uh, and and different companies, different banks were que- were were queuing their applicants in different ways and prioritizing them. And my partners and I talked and looked at each other, and we said, you know what? Every one of our businesses deserves to get a loan. You know, it was sort of a sell a mellow key moment. How am I supposed to say that the retail shop, you know, on Northern Parkway, the dressmaker in the Bronx, you know, or someone on Queens Boulevard or wherever, that they weren't supposed to get the same attention as the hoity-toity lawyers who were applying for this loan from Mark Avenue. So we took the decision to move about 25% of my colleagues in the bank off of their jobs, working to do these loans. And they worked, people worked day and night in two hour shifts from sleep, sometimes 24 hours a day. And we had this saying that only a banker could love, could love no compliant application left behind. <laughs> and uh, um, I don't need to give you the, uh, the history of that sort of phrase with that rhymes. <laughs> but you know what? At the end of the day, everybody got along. Every single compliant application got approved. And I can't tell you the feeling of collective joy that we had. It really wasn't about the, you know, we obviously got some sort of fees. I don't know whether we made money, what, whatever. I don't know if we made money or not at the end of the day because we upturned the bank. But people who had been, I talked to one person who had 41 years, his family had had a little business at the tip of Long Island, and we got him the money. And this is somebody who would have been, forget- their family would have been forgotten about it. And he knew that. And that was a Salamelochim. That was a moment where everybody has to be helped. Everyone's created in the divine image. Everybody's created in divine image. Everybody has that spark of godliness. And and love your neighbor as yourself. Hillel's rule, don't do unto someone else as you wouldn't want it done unto you. 
And so this may not have been what you were looking for, but it was really a moment that I felt like everything in my, in my, for my values and, and, and business life were coming together. And I think my colleagues share that, honestly. I think there was a collective sense of real, and I use that word uh, advisedly, joy that we were able to get this done. It was happiness, not pleasure. People were exhausted, but they were happy. Amen. Scott, thank you so much for being here. This is amazing. So thank you very much. And I hope you and your listeners uh, can get a chance to read. Cons- oh, yes. Wait, let me ask you. What, what's the full title of the book? Good. So my book just came out last week, Conspiracy You, a case study. And I show how far right and far left conspiracy theories are masquerading as scholarship at universities. I have some suggestions that, as I said, would take a few podcasts about what to do about it. But what I think the the insight, an essential insight is showing how these came from, where these came from, and how sometimes the far left and far right, as I said before, saying the same thing. And I know lots of people are reading this who are thinking about college. They're asking the exact same question. What college should I go to? What college should I advise my children to apply to? And what can we do about academia when the more education people are getting, the more anti-Semitic they're coming out? That's a very scary thing. So I think this is an urgent book. I mean, I wrote it urgently, and and thankfully the publisher was good to get it out as, as quickly as possible because I think we need to be talking about this right now. The book is Conspiracy You. It's fabulous. I enjoyed it myself. Uh, and of particular personal significance to me, it is blurbed by Nick's legend, Clyde Frazier. Uh, and that I, I, I say this particularly because this is the Knicks season that I am been most excited about in the, like, the last two decades. Bing bong. Let's get this done. The book is Conspiracy You. The author is Scott Shea. He is amazing. I hope you've seen that from this podcast and uh, looking forward to having you back soon. Thank you, Ari. It was a real pleasure. Thinking and doing. These are the twin indispensable pillars of a healthy society. And we want to educate the next generation to engage in the best of both. In fact, this is essential. Thought alone without deed is just idle speculation, while deed alone without thought, without meaning, is just random events. But when you combine events with meaning, when you combine thought and deed, well, you get a story. And if you want to see the greatest stories of all time in action, Well, one great place to start is the Bible. And if we're looking for societal and civilizational renewal in the generation ahead, if we're looking to educate well, not just awarding credentials, but actually bestowing wisdom, then it seems obvious to me that biblical literature is an essential component of our task ahead. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then go ahead and be awesome. Go into Apple Podcasts, head into iTunes, check out Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a rating, Five stars only, baby, because it really helps people find the show. Okay, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast. Presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb. And sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. 
For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 